Blog Talk Radio. Party is to introduce to you 
and political panelists and analysts for today. So right now, let's get started with this party on Africa on the Move. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Okay, fine, Brother Anthony. We now would like to bring in Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Move. Brother Africa. Thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamathi Mishoki. Currently, I'm with African Awareness. And, of course, you know my thing is all about institution buildings in the African community. Uh, one of the things, you know, recently, Brother Africa, I read an article that got me thinking. You know, often we talk about the protracted war that's been initiated against African people here in America. And this article got me thinking about the relationship between uh, the social economic factors and the health of African people. But in any event, the relationship, the article talks about the relationship between sociological factors like poverty, health care, inequality, and racism, and their impact on the biology is well understood. For African people, the impact, negative impact on African life is profound. Negative social economics are affiliated with high blood pressure, heart disease, dementia, breast cancer. These ailments, according to this particular article, are a direct result of stresses imposed upon the body. In the case of Africans, the level of stress is such that stress causes the body to produce excessive amount of inflammation. This is information that weakens the African immune system, thereby increasing the level of vulnerability to diseases. Now, given this scientific fact, Brother Africa, two things to me become very, very evident. One, if stress or excessive stress above and beyond normal levels of stress for, for white people in America abounds, would it not be prudent to innovate institutions that mitigate excessive stress? Secondly, if being America means embracing institutions that facilitate excessive stress upon African people, but this implies that self-destructing thinking is such an intimate part of our DNA, we fail to see the paradox. It seems to me, oh Brother Africa, institutions that prioritize African humanity over all else is the only way to put Africans on the path to true liberation. Without a path to liberation, political obstacles would not simply vanish, and the cascading effect of African destruction would continue unabated under the guise of retracted war. So we have to have institutions to clarify precisely what it is up against and to fight against it because we don't have enough. Having concluded that, Brother Africa, let me simply say again, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here, Brother Aki. Next, we go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the often finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Yes, sir. Uh, next, we follow with Brother Zabari. Brother Zabari, welcome to Africa on the Move. Peace, everybody. Brother Jabari, resident researcher. Looking forward to another cipher program. Appreciate the honor and opportunity to be a part. All right. Kind of like it started with our party by always talking about what's going on in your world in the community. Start out with you, Brother Anthony. What's going on in your world in the community? 
Okay, certainly. I'll start off with this announcement. This Saturday, October 26th, there'll be the 11th Annual Freedom Dance celebrating the 40th year of uh, Asada Shakur's liberation from U.S. prison. This will take place October 26th at the National Black Theater, 2031 Fifth Avenue in Harlem, New York, from 8 p.m. to 1 a.m. Donation, $20. Um, And this is organized by the Pro-Libertad Freedom Campaign. And uh, those in the listening audience that are in the vicinity of New York, please check this program out to show support and solidarity with the work that uh, Asada Shakur has has been doing and continues to do on, on behalf of African freedom. Also, um, the fallout from the um, murder of uh, 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 of the sister in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, is incre- uh, the fallout from that is increasing. Uh, there are uh, there are forces that are calling for an independent investigation of her murder at the hands of the Fort Worth uh, police force. Okay. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Next, we're going with Brother Haki. What's going on in your world and community? Yes, a couple, well, a couple of things, Brother Africa. First, uh, African Awareness Week doing a solidarity tour to Cuba. This trip takes place October 31st. November 6th. For more information, we ask you to call us at 804-549-7492 or area code 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. We encourage people to go to Cuba and see for themselves firsthand, you know, what makes Cuba such a great place. Uh, one of the things we talk about the role of institutions in, in, in everyday life. Cuba's doing a masterful job in terms of innovative institutions which bring the highest amount of humanity out of its people. And, it's a, and as a result of that humanity they share among one another, they're able to do miraculous things in terms of technology and education there in Cuba and science, in particular in science. So we encourage people to go to Cuba and see firsthand those things which are not only uh, beneficial you know, to the world, but also beneficial to Africans and aspirations for freedom in North America. The second thing, uh, African Awareness will do is the Richmond uh, First Annual Pan-African International Festival. And this takes place, of course, in Richmond, Virginia. And this is going to take place at a, at a place called Africongo. And this takes place October 27th. And it will be between 11 o'clock and 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. For more information, please give us a call, 549-7492 or area code 202-714-9435. Or email us at African Awareness. Association, number two, at gmail.com. We encourage people to come out firsthand and uh, participate in these festivities because we hope this will be the first one among many in terms of uh, institutionalization, you know, of this kind of program, you know, throughout the South. Uh, the thing that Brother Africa, you know, um, I, you know, I want to, to, to raise, you know, I read an article, I was listening to Andrew uh, Yang in terms of his debate around the, you know, universal basic income. And I thought it was a very good idea, and one of the things I find ironic is that a lot of the other so-called Democrats, uh, the, the part of the people, refuse to deal with the question in terms of a basic income, universal basic un- income for citizens. In any event, the article, now the UBI or the universal basic income advocated by Andrew Young is an old concept. 
um, their private interests, particularly the welfare concerns, are not one of social cohesion but maximization of profits. As the global economy deconstructs, the question of what to do with the unemployed, what to do with the homeless, uh, human beings living on the streets, is a question uh, on the minds of the ruling class. Now, minimize the war of attrition or the systematic elimination of humans must be elevated. Uh, <clears throat> now, now the thing is that I think what's important. Excuse me, Brother Africa. I think it's what is important to point out is that when we talk about in terms of, you know, the systematic uh, elimination of human beings, the reason why it's so important that the systematic human beings is important because in order for the ruling class to maintain this hegemon, or hegemony. In order for it to maintain control, it has to ha- it has to have a, a, a it has some idea in terms of number of people who are manageable. So in that context, the question in terms of how do you get rid of people and the ways in which you manage to get rid of people is on, is not pertinent in the minds of many people, you know, among the, the ruling class. Now the UBI believes the solution to unemployment, homelessness, and general hopelessness is to provide every citizen eighteen years and above a one thousand dollar check monthly to spend as they see useful. Uh, this would achieve results on two levels. First, it would greatly lessen crime because of the guaranteed income. Secondly, by putting money in the hands of consumers, ensures stimulation of the economy as people have money to buy. Businesses increase their bottom line, thus making revenues available for government in the form of taxes. It seems like a win-win, right? Well, apparently not. Um, from a ruling class perspective, consolidation of power uh, precedes all others concerned. If the UBI were to be implemented, it would make it difficult for the ruling to exercise power. UBI would create conditions whereby competition would be nullified and the possibility of people across ethnic divisions to work together. This would be disastrous for the ruling elite. People working together increases the possibility of people begin to understand their common enemy, which is the ruling class. So therefore, the ruling class would be adamantly opposed against any kind of uh, universal basic income, even though it's beneficial in terms of the overall function of the economy. So when we talk about this question of universal basic income, to understand that given the fact when we talk about increasing levels of unemployment and we talk about automation and we're talking about these, these corporations moving their, their companies abroad to maximize their profits, it means fundamentally that people right here in America don't have access to jobs. So the question is, what do you do with all these people who don't have access to jobs? Well, the universal basic income satisfies that question. So I think it's something that people really seriously have to look, at, look into in terms of, uh, in terms of viability. Okay, that's interesting. Let's talk about that a little more later on. Next, we can go to our brother Robert. Brother Robert, what's going on in your world, in your community? Talk to us. Well, it's been an interesting week. Um, certainly, we should mention the, the passing of Elijah Cummins, uh, congressman uh, out of Baltimore, uh, had an impact on, in terms of Afri- African American uh, struggles. Uh, then there was uh, the, I don't know if it was a press secretary or what, but he admitted that there was a quid pro quo in the uh, dealings with the Ukraine and President uh, President Trump. And uh, he, 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 admitted, he, he said there was a quid pro quo and that, that basically that was standard operating procedures according to what he was saying and that, you know, we should just get over it. And then, uh, of course, he had to backtrack later on and 
and clean it up and, and deny everything he had just said. I thought that was very interesting as the impeachment thing goes on. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Brother Moses. Now we'll go to our next panelist, Alice. Brother Jabari, what's going on in your world in the community? So I recently read an article detailing one of Amazon's latest um, acquisitions. And recently, Amazon purchased a company called Ring. And Ring is a company that owns doorbells that enable those that buy one of the smart doorbells to be able to survey that which is on their property. Now, what I found particularly troubling is that with Ring, you can also um, get access to this program called Neighbors by Ring, which is an app to let viewers see other things um, uploaded by those that are other ring owners. So, in other words, they own these other smart doorbells. And to make things even more troubling, as we know in regards to Amazon, they've been selling this particular ring technology to law enforcement. And their questions of if they're trying to create some type of for-profit surveillance ring in terms of this kind of technology being accessed to them. So it just goes to show we have to be careful of the things that we purchase, especially if we say we're doing this in the name of security, because then these will be the same things used to oppress us. And yet again, it brings in the question in regards to what is the end game with what Amazon is trying to do, because they're at a rapid rate. They're constantly acquiring very um, dangerous forms of technology that can be utilized in devious ways, but yet they never want to be accountable when people question them about it. Very interesting, Jabari. Very interesting. Let's start there. Panelists, would you make up what Jabari just raised about the instant doorbell surveillance cameras that can be captured to, they can be monitored and be used by the police and other people? I know one of the things we had an early discussion with some of the people in the, in the city that um, it also serve as a automatic monitoring device for the community at large. A lot of times, it record other things around it, other houses. So you monitor really yourself in terms of the community. What did y'all make that? Are we really become a state or already have we became a state where we are policing ourselves through cameras and making it easy for other folks to monitor us 24-7? We're in the prison, but we don't even realize we're being in, uh, in prison. Y'all response, panelists? I think it's true, and I think it's very ominous. And, uh, you know, it's becoming uh, almost like um, uh, a 1984 scenario that George Orwell predicted decades ago in which, every, uh, in which you know, listening and monitoring devices are turned into uh, uh, mechanisms for spying on people and eroding what, what little prophecy we have left. And uh, it could be used in all kinds of ways, to, uh, in uh, ranging from digging up dirt on people to uh, stifling political dissent. And uh, you know, so it's a very it's a very dangerous sign if you know this comes to pass. And uh, people do have to be aware of what they're buying. And uh, what kinds of things, uh, you know, we're, we're, we might be unwittingly authorizing ourselves for. And, Brother Africa, can I share another highlight of the article that I just discovered? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. 
this marine company that I mentioned that Amazon owns has more than 400 partnerships with Excuse me. Have more than 400 police partnerships, and I'm not. This is the number that I'm reading in the article. You heard that correctly. Over 400 police partnerships in in um, states including Florida, Virginia, Atlanta, um, Georgia, California, and Texas. Florida, Virginia, Georgia, California, and Texas. And we're saying over more than 400 police partnerships. And they say that rarely do people bring into question that when I hear that. It's a question of do people even know these kind of relationships and partnerships exist, saying that there's little with any public, you know, concern about it. I think because they don't know. It's hard to question what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they always, well, you know. They always blame the victim, survive. You know, they create scenarios, um, allowed to respond in a way, and then by creating new scenarios, then they turn right back around and say, that you're responsible for what you did. And I was addressing their role in terms of creating these conditions and cause you to respond like that. Yeah, Brother Hackey, you got the mic. Yeah, yeah well, you know, what, what What else can you expect of a police state? I mean, one thing, I think it's, it's very fundamental, it seems to me, is that when you talk about a society which, which systematically uh, impoverishes a large number is populist, for the sole purpose of making sure a small, for small numbers populist uh, become uh, I mean, it's a certain amount of profitability. Anytime you have such a system, then you've got to understand that inevitably it's going to lead to all kinds of problems. And so we talk about dislocation and we talk about uh, unemployment and we talk about hopelessness that generally pervades the society. The one thing is you've got to understand that as far as the system is concerned, that represents fundamental problems in terms of the function of the system. So in that context, you've got to understand that all of us become potential enemies of the state. And so they have to have means in which they watch all of us. They have to. Because the only way they're going to survive is that they got to be able to watch us, all of us. And so when they have to have a sense in terms of who we are, what we think, how we move, so forth and so on, because that way they, their, position, their position is that if, if they know in terms of, you know, who we are, it's much easier for them to intervene, to so-called pick people up and so forth and turn people in terms of concentration camps and so forth in terms of maintaining control and power. So, I, so nobody should be surprised that everything they do is, is, is not only militarized, but it's, uh, it's, it's innovated in a way to make damn sure that it has the, 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 it has the ability in terms of actually spying on people. Everything they do, we're talking about computers, phones, doorbells, it doesn't matter. All of it is, ge- all of it is geared toward in terms of surveillance of the population. Because like I said before, as long as we're perceived as enemies, by no, by no fault of our own, uh, but as long as the system position is that it's going to reward a very small number of people at the top in opposition to a very large number of people at the bottom, then that kind of insta- potential instability has to be monitored. So these doorbells give the power structure an opportunity in terms of surveilling us so, in terms of, so they can assess who's who in terms of you know, uh, potential, you know, potential movements in this country. So that is, that is, the, that is the focus of people in, in, among ruling class. So the thing that we have to understand that we have to fundamentally fight back in terms of right in terms of, of privacy, because right now, as it stands, the media consistently tells us that you have no right to privacy, and I'm afraid that increasingly younger people are growing up thinking that they don't have an inherent right to privacy, and so they're much more willing to accept this kind of this kind of spying. So we have to teach our young people that you have a human right in terms of your privacy, that your thoughts are your own, uh, that uh, you that you should be free in terms of living your life in a way. Uncumbersome. You don't have to worry about you know people spying on you and so forth and so on. 
But I think that all this underscores the kind of precariousness or the instability that exists in the system in terms of people in position of power understanding that the system is on its way out. And so they're doing what they can in terms of survival. So I think all of this insanity, for the time being, is not going anywhere. So it's going to be a, a real struggle for change in terms of bringing some semblance of decency back, you know, to life, uh, particularly throughout throughout the world, because this kind of phenomenon is being uh, presented throughout the world as a viable uh, 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 component in terms of, you know, combating, you know, uh, change. So this is a fundamental problem that we're facing with in terms of this kind of uh, pervasive uh, uh, technology. It makes you think that all technology is not necessarily good technology. Some people just automatically apply that because it's technology, it's all good. But if it can be used to bring about more damages than good, then do you find that it's good technology? Is it something we should be using at this stage? Is the people have no way to check it, no way to, um, you know, confront it when it goes astray, you know? And um, it's just unfortunate. It seems like we're just going down the wrong, page, wrong, wrong, wrong road when it comes to technology because they have all kinds of devices in there monitoring everyone. And, um, but people are not conscious of it. So what do you think life would be like in the next 10 years in this country with all these various forms of monitoring people on a daily basis? What do you think political opposition would be like in terms of those who don't think and act in the interest of the state, which you think will, will become a those individuals. Matter of fact, panelists, I wonder, I'd like to get y'all to respond to this. It's just somewhat off the subject, but not off the subject. As we look at these these uh, assassinations by these young people of African descent and other ethnic groups, one of the narratives they often talk about is, they, is that they never talk about who these people are. Could it be some kind of pattern that these people are getting shot or being assassinated? Uh, people uh, who are doing things in the community that are very challenging or threatening and not going along with the savage quo in a positive way. And the media is just looking at it as if, you know, here go another mistake by the official um, government under the disguise of the police department. I think there's something to that, Brother Africa, because uh, uh, Sandra Bland, for example, uh, she was, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, an activist in her community before she was, uh, you know, um, you know, arrested by the police. I think, I think there is a pattern. And I think a lot of the youth that were involved in the Ferguson uh, protests uh, when Michael, Michael Brown was assassinated, a, a lot of the, a lot of the youth that were, you know, that provided leadership were 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 were, were, were killed under very mysterious circumstances. And uh, and uh, there is and also and also. The brother that was a key witness in the case for uh, uh, for 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 for, uh, for brother John, who was uh, killed by this uh, European uh, uh, policewoman. Um, you know, he was. Uh, uh, you know, he 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 uh, he died under uh, under uh, questionable circumstances. So I think there's a pattern here, but. 
unless people look behind the headlines and start connecting the dots, you know, it, it's hard to see that. But there is, a, but but I think, but there is an effort to try to, uh, you know, to further repress uh, those uh, Africans who speak out against uh, and try to organize against our oppression. Yeah, I think I think you underscore uh, the role of the media. Uh, one of the things I think we got to understand is that once the new media uh, creates a narrative, uh, there's a tendency among many people to believe that narrative. I think increasingly people begin to understand that often the narrative presented by the mainstream media is false, which might account for why most people get their news from the Internet. They don't get it from so-called tabloids or, 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 or network news. So it's good that people are at least beginning to understand that uh, the mainstream media is somewhat disingenuous in terms of its presentation of news. I think one of the things is very, very clear. One of the things that the, the ruling elite does not want to happen, they certainly don't want a situation um, um, conceivably where you have the emergence of another Martin Luther King or Malcolm X you know, in the context of America. And so, therefore, the narrative becomes extremely important. So even those brothers and sisters who've been killed on mysterious circumstances are uh, engaged in, I mean, in the struggle in terms of bringing clarity to the masses of people. The media wouldn't want you to know that, uh, and so therefore it's in their interest not that you don't know that. So it's coming upon us in the communities, you know, who, who are in pro- close proximity to these individuals, that when they're assassinated like that, when they kill, to bring forth the kind of things they were doing in terms of, you know, bringing about, you know, clarity to the masses of folks in terms of the necessity of struggle. So I think it's coming upon us as a community, you know, when that happens to people among us, you know, since we have some understanding in terms of who the individual was, and the kind of work the individual participating in. If it's a situation that individuals, in fact, doing political work, doing things in terms of conscious raising, then we need to elevate that via social media, and to so to, so most of us can can get that. Now there is a danger that social media might simply edit that out. That is a possibility, which raises the question that what do we do in terms of communication? So I think one of the old technologies has been newspapers. So the question is, how do we get together in terms of you know creating a, a national newspaper? To ensure that it reaches, you know, major, you know, urban areas, you know, through the country. So I think it's something that we have to seriously uh, think about. Uh, but I think that the, the, the power of the of, of the media is is is, is, is formidable, and so I think that uh, you know they can very well change, control the media, the narrative, and so we've got to be very concerned about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The yeah, repression, really the repression has been obvious uh, ever since. The, more and more since the, the whistleblower showed the NSA was eavesdropping on telephone calls, et cetera. So we've, we've got a totalitarian state, and uh, it's definitely trying to maintain itself, and, and that means repressing and oppressing all opposition. And this is very clear. Thank you. Points well made, points well made. Brother Haki and panelists, let's go back into this universal, um, what's the word for allowing people so much money a month just to live and function off of. That seems to be a very excellent idea. That's a win-win for everybody, as you alluded to, but you said they don't want that. But um, how do we begin to start making those kind of ideas become more popular so people can start grabbing onto it? Because you know, 
if you only see it one time, so you'll never get it. You have to do like me, you does it, say it a thousand times, keep saying it over. But I think that uniform, uniform, uh, universal um, income is an excellent concept. And it's, a, it's amazing that you don't hear any, any of this from these politicians who talk about they want to have the people. I'm quite sure the people would like to have that. Y'all assess me on that? In regards yeah, to the well, question. Go ahead. In regards to the question that was posed by Brother Africa, one thing I would advocate for is if us getting back to grassroots activism, because one thing, unfortunately, as technology does help a lot of times in getting messages to spread quickly, just as quickly that message can be distorted into terms of something else because it's a very, it's very key in terms of negative propaganda in terms of the kind of things that people can do when they have access to technology that can reach large audiences in the record amount of time. So we need to go back to grassroots activism and really being intentional about organizing and spreading the word so that we can come up with strategies that they're not prepared for. Because if you, far too often, we try to utilize the tools that the oppressor may give us, and oftentimes that's not going to work in our favor because they already know just as they know how to use it, they know how to counteract that as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, would add, I would add that it speaks to the importance of permanent political organization. And it's only through organization that we can actually, uh, you know, make uh, uh, make our our struggles understood and known to the masses of our people. Because uh, because if everything is left up to mass media, uh, what's readily available, then it will not get known. So the thing about it, though, uh, you know, independent and alternate sources of media have to take the lead in terms of highlighting the work that's being done to organize our people for permanent liberation. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, I think one of the things in terms of, you know, the universal basic income, I think one of the things you raise the question in terms of what can we do in terms of uh, increasing the, uh, the viability, you know, of, of, of such a concept. Well, this is a concept that was formulated back in the 60s by you know, Martin Luther King, uh, even further back, back in the 17th century, uh, it was advocated uh, because people understood essentially that the wealthy wasn't particularly concerned in terms of the welfare of, 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 the, of, the, of the citizenry. Uh, and as such, they understand that the economy would be greatly impacted. And so, therefore, they even back in the 17th century, they advocated a universal basic income. Now, I think that in terms of, you know, one of the things, you know, we, we have to understand is that inevitably when you talk about university basic income, the immediate response is going to be when they're talking about socialism. And, of course, socialism is bad. That's a bad thing. And uh, they go, there are people on running that line. And they're, certainly they're convinced a certain amount of people that socialism or university basic income is a socialist idea and, therefore, it's a bad thing to be rejected. But I think, by and large, most people, when you talk to them about transferring university basic income, I think they begin to understand and see the relevance in terms of universal basic income. It's not a question in terms of anybody giving anybody anything. It's a question in terms of a social contract. Uh in return, you know, you know, for you know, for, you know, uh my being part of part of the citizenry here, that I'm entitled to certain uh resources that this that the society offers. And it's only a fair it's only fair. Uh in order to get things done in, in this community in this in this sort of in a society, then people have to work together in terms of bring bring those things about. 
And so on many, many different levels, we, we participate in the system in terms of making, you know, uh, uh, this system work. So, therefore, it seems to me just on a, on a pragmatic level, it seems to me that you certainly, you're not giving anybody anything, but you're simply giving them what they contribute, you know, to society. And so $1,000, you know, a month, you know, per person, uh, it's not a whole lot of money, particularly when you talk about situation, when you talk about, uh, when you talk about taxing the, the, the profitability, you know, of giant corporations. And this is, this is important because one of the things is that, you know, people often say that, well, how is it going to be funded? Well, often people talk about taxes. Well, taxes are certainly taxes on the wealthy, and certainly that's one way to go. But what happens is that after the, tax, the, the, the wealthy, uh, the corporations, some of what they're going to do, they're simply going to hide their taxes. So therefore, taxes may not be a most germane way in terms of bringing about the kind of revenue you need in terms of universal basic income. But certainly, but certainly if, you, if, you, um, if, if, if you tax productivity in terms of when you talk about what people, what corporations produce and what they sell them for, and between the middle, tax them at that level, and certainly it makes it much more problematic for, for corporations to avoid paying their fair share in terms of in terms of revenues, you know, toward universal basic income. And, and on that on that grounds, we can afford universal basic income and, 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 and as I alluded to before, it's a win win because now you have people have money in their pockets which they can spend, which contributes to the overall function of the economy, which is a win win. Uh, but uh, again, it's important to understand that it's not about the economics; it's about power. The, the wealthy don't give a damn about about economics. They understand that a lot of these policies they enact are, 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 are counterintuitive; that they do nothing in terms of addressing the question of poverty. They understand that, but the mere fact that they 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 they're, they're, well, they're motivated by in terms of power, and so therefore, by not having universal basic income, by making sure the increasing number of people are impoverished. And it solidifies their control and their power, and that's precisely what they want. And this is why we have been saying that the wealthy will be the first and foremost to fight hard, uh, like hell. The corporations will fight like hell to make sure universal basic income doesn't come into existence. But once you present it to the people in terms of this idea, I think it'll it'll, it'll gel with a lot of a lot of people. But, people. You, but you know, brother Hachi, like everything, there are positive and negatives. If they decide to do that, one of the negative things may be that by doing it. Yeah, people might even become more entrenched and more reliable of being dependent on that money and be less willing to really resist and, ch- and fight for a change where they truly will get a sense of um, a sense of their being independent and being free. It's another, like another tactic that they will use, like the so-called social welfare program they have in place now, where when you begin to give people resources and less they have to struggle for it, they have a tendency to settle for that and be less willing to be resistant to want to bring about real change where they truly would be, you know, independent as 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 a, as, a, as a people or as an individual. That's one of the downsides I see as a possibility if that does take place. But um, y'all respond to that. Yeah, well, I think I, I think there is that there is a possibility that may happen, and you're absolutely correct because one of the things you want from the people. You want people to be motivated for change, and in fact, if thing if thing is uh, if thing is comfortable, then they're less likely in terms of you know uh, struggling for change because as far as they're concerned, everything is fine. But what I'm counting on is that the ruling class, you know, even if it's UBI comes to existence, what I'm counting on, at some point, the ruling class, you know, uh, you know, elevating you know, propaganda to destroy a program, is only then that people begin to understand, you know, that uh, the interest of the government is not necessarily interest in their well-being. So I'm counting on the if UBI passes, of course it probably won't pass. But even if it got passed, I can I, I anticipate 
that the ruling class is not going to allow that to exist forever, simply because it undermines their power. And so why, why this is important is that one of the things, Brother Africa, I think that he know also, when we, when we talk about in terms of empowering people in terms of putting money in their pockets, one of the things, what it does, it, 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 it enhances social, uh, uh, to some sense, social mobility, or not social mobility, but it certainly enhances, you know, uh, this, this social uh, uh, potential in terms of people actually getting along together in terms of, you know, actually talking, talking about things. Now, that kind of discussion in terms of, you know, uh, uh, being able to freely discuss things without fear of, of, of any type of um, uh, response from the government is a very powerful thing. So if people got that money knowing that they're going to get that $1,000 every month, then there's, no, there's nothing going to inhibit them from terms of expressing what they feel freely. Right now, people are scared because they realize that if they say something that the government doesn't approve of or their employees don't approve of, then that's a very real possibility they're going to lose their jobs. And so it has a chilling effect, so people are scared. And so, therefore, you know, with that $1,000 a month, then people are free from that kind of fear, and they're free to articulate what they really feel. Because there's a lot of resentment out here. There's a lot of anger. So I don't think that $1,000 per month per se is going to be enough to appease most people. Certainly it's going to appease some people. But I think most people can still understand that just as they give it, they can take it away and begin to begin to ask the question, why is it that they, they can give it, but the same token they can take it away when they're ready? So I think it's going to stimulate a kind of discussion which leads people to understand, you know, intimately, you know, how the system functions. That's what I'm counting on. But uh, if UPI passes, we'll see what happens. Um, I think it's going to take more than UBI. I think it'll help. But actually what uh, what the, the, the ornament need is uh, for a transformation of society from an exploitative capitalist one to a scientific socialist one. And under a social and the thing about it though, the reason why people are scared of socialism is because most people in this society don't know what socialism is. And socialism is an economic system in which everybody owns and controls the means of production. Not which is different from capitalism in which in which the productive process is socialized, but only a few actually control it. Only a few people, and that is uh, the ruling, uh, uh, you know, bourgeoisie control it. So, in order for it to ultimately work, what you what has to uh, go along with that is a, a political educational process to educate people to their human rights. The right to health care, the right to housing, the right to food, uh, the right to clothing. These are basic human rights that can only be realized by the masses of people under a socialist society. And if and I think if people are educated to what that is, to what exists in, in places like Bolivia, Cuba, they're trying to build it in Venezuela, and it was just in uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Then, uh, then uh, people won't be so frightened of the term. And uh, fear is used a great deal in this system in order to frighten people from looking at things in a different light from what the ruling class prescribes. 
Well, I think I think one of the things I think the UBI potentially could lead towards socialism. Let me tell you why. One of the things is that you know when people get that one thousand dollars a month, uh, it's not going to preclude the rise of rents. It's not going to preclude the rise of of, of, of food. Uh, it's certainly not going to preclude the right in terms of quality education. So these things will continue to rise. So the one thousand dollars a month is not a cure all in terms of the problems that human beings are confronted with. But I think what it does do, I think it causes people to think, well, if I can get one thousand dollars a month, you know, and but it doesn't cover food, shelter, uh, clothes, and so forth and so on, then the the in, 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 inevitably the cry has to be, you know, one thousand dollars simply ain't enough. We need more in terms of in terms of being able to survive in society. So I think ultimately it leads to socialism. Because people get to real, come to the realization that government does play a role and government can play a role in terms of making your life better. So I think that in, in, a, in a very uh, a, 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 a peripheral kind of way, I think it does contribute in terms of the better understanding in terms of why socialism is so so important, why it's so desirable in, in society. Given the alternative between capitalism, uh, uh, there's there's no question about it. Capitalism um, uh, by design uh, is 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 is, is is partial to those who possess the capital. Socialism, by design, is 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 is, uh, is dedicated to the well-being of its citizenry, not based upon class standing. So, therefore, I think the UBI would certainly uh, in, in, in help people to understand the role government can play in terms of making their lives better. So, I I, I think it would, on the contrary, I think it would probably lead to a better understanding in terms of socialism. You know, we rest in drinking some of that Kool-Aid because I don't know how anyone can talk about anything that would be better for you than this capitalist stuff. They catch a hell. They kill you every way they can. They putting poison in your body to make you live a short life, have a short life expectancy. They completely miseducate your kids. You have some of the worst housing conditions that you live under, made with materials they're giving people counsel, but yet they have nothing to talk about socialism there. While you are living a bad life, what kind of Kool-Aid are we drinking if we let anyone come in front of you and say that? By the way, panelists, let me raise this question. Recently, Brother Moses raised the question of Elijah Hummings made a transition. How would he be memorable from your perspective? Because we know when African people die, there's very little said once they make, the, make a physical transition. If not left up to the people, if they really was not do anything for the people, then they would die also. But if they have created life in a struggle where they uh, integrate themselves with the people that are the struggles, then, you know, they basically live forever among these people. So how will y'all think he'll be remembered? Because I noticed the so-called savage media, they say very little about transition. What does that single, a man who gave all his life to this so-called institution they call the U.S. Senate or Congress, and this is how they treat you. Why would people still want to run for those kind of positions? Talk to me, panelists. Elijah I think the reason why people run for those positions, <clears throat> either either they 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 sincerely believe they can improve the lives of their community, or they're in it. They're in it for uh, for uh, they're motivated by profits, by selfish gain for themselves. And uh, and uh, let's see. And the thing and the thing about Elijah Cummings 
is that he'll be remembered, I think, among his constituency for having stood up to Donald Trump during his administration. And, um, you know, and the fact that he uh, that he cared about the people in his community. Uh, let's see. And, um, you know, incor- uh, incorrectly, he was trying to do it through the Democratic Party, like most like a lot of uh, other African po- uh, uh, politicians. But um, people have. Um, have a certain sense of who was sincere and who was generally trying to work in their best interests. And I think, and those who who do that will endure in the memory of the people. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, Elijah Cummings was as congenial as they come. I mean, you know, he um, he was very even tempered, uh, even measured. And uh, so I think, you know, his approach to politics wasn't as um, progressive, you know, as I would like. Uh, he certainly cannot be accused of being you know, part of the squad. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, he deeply cared about, you know, uh, the, the suffering of the people. And uh, his, a lot of his policies reflected that reality. So the mere fact that the media doesn't elevate, you know, his passing suggests a couple of things. First, I think it suggests that uh, there's, there's this, 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 this color consciousness that exists in society. In which anything I've said is, and particularly when it comes to uh, African people, should not be validated. And so, therefore, there's a tendency not to even talk about it, as though somehow just let it pass, you know, because it's not really important. I, I think the second thing I think that you know, when, particularly when when, he, when 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 the Orange Minutes talked about Baltimore being a a giant slum, I think Elijah Cohen did a very good job in terms of underscoring the, the level of corruption that exists, you know, you know, in his administration that contribute to cities like Baltimore being a giant being giant slums as as Orange Minutes would put it. So I think the mere fact that, you know, he critiqued uh, you know, American society in a way in which was palatable to a lot of people in terms of power. And keep in mind that anytime you make have a critique, uh if you don't say it a certain way, then you certainly alienate the, 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 the elite. So you gotta say it a certain way. So Elijah Coming, you know, being a member of the church was very, very skilled in terms of articulating, you know, uh, you know, problems in a way in which are palatable, you know, to the ruling elite. But nonetheless, the message that he, he conveyed was not uh, one in which they wanted to hear. So I think for those reasons, you know, his, his passing, you know, was downplayed. I, I think it's for political considerations. So I think it's important that we as a people, we understand the, the contribution that Elijah Cummings played in terms of, you know, moving, moving the yardstick forward in terms of you know, basic human dignity and, and, and right and justice for African people and of poor people, you know, in the society. So I think we have a great deal of respect to Elijah Cummings for the kind of stance that he took in terms of trying to bring some redress to this insanity that we're confronted with on a daily basis. Anyone else like to speak to how they would view or see Elijah's Cummings? If not, let's talk a little bit about the continuation of the saga of the fourth west was the fourth west Texas shooting where the where the police was shot through the window to kill a young lady. How they are playing that narrative. She was so called um I believe she was indicted, given some time, I believe. 
But I don't think she's really going to do it in time. But how do y'all see that narrative playing out? As you hear more and more stuff that's coming out. Uh, I think she'll do some time. I doubt if she'll serve her maximum sentence. And uh, this is because um, people on, uh, uh, you, you know, on, on, on police forces, even even when even when they leave that, they're put on a pedestal, as if that as if that being a policeman is the most dangerous occupation out there. And uh, even though e- even though there uh, 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 there are other occupations that are fraught with dangers as well, but they provide the security for the ruling class, so they're elevated, you know what? And so that's why I don't I, I don't I don't think she'll serve any anywhere close uh, to what her maximum uh, sentence uh, was. And it seems as if there are forces at work to try to, uh, uh, let's see, uh, to appease the Europeans that might have been upset at uh, at her conviction. And I think that's why one of the uh, chief uh, uh, witnesses in that case was uh, killed. Even though the media put yeah. the praise of that the drug deal gone bad, but uh, but 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 uh, from the details I heard about uh, about that story, I find some things uh, certain things questionable. Yeah, I, I seriously doubt if she's going to do even half of the time. Uh, in part because remember um, the, 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 the deceased brother and uh, the judge. You know, we're big fans of this, this former police officer who killed that young man. So I think that alone, in terms of PR, public relations, is going to pay big in terms of you know when she appeals this, uh, that's going to be a, less, a great lessening of that sentence. So I'm not optimistic that she's going to spend in real, I mean, real time in terms of you know uh, her crimes. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I I I think when I think back and I, and I think that that awful display of misplaced affection uh, that was. Um, Visit upon this this this, this ex police officer. I tell you, I, I, it makes it, it, it's, it's very difficult to swallow. Given the fact you look at the historical injustices inflicted upon African people, uh, you talk about the fact that this woman herself was very very uh, antagonistic toward the interests of African people. In fact, on numerous occasions, talked about you know her insensitivity toward African people in terms of you know her willingness to deny African people the basic human rights in terms of you know as as a police officer. So I have a real fundamental difficulty in terms of understanding that what played out in that court. But as a result of that playing out in the court, I think it's going to her advantage, and she's not in real time in, in, in prison. And shout-out to the Puerto Rican community for acknowledging their sister Sada and her significant. You know, a lot of people may ask who've never heard of their name before, why are they doing this for Sister Asylum? How would y'all respond to that, Palace? Uh Asada has has been involved in the struggle for uh for for, for, for the human rights of humanity in general. 
and Africans in the particular, since she was a college student. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, she saw the injustices that Africans were suffering and chose to get involved in the struggle through the Black Panther Party and later on the Black Liberation Army. And, uh, and I think, um, you know, and I think that resonates among uh, the masses of oppressed people worldwide. And I think that's why, you know, uh, Puerto Ricans are showing such solidarity uh, with uh, Asada Shakur. Yeah, the Puerto Ricans have their own struggle in terms of colonial status versus independence. And so that's been a long struggle in Puerto Rico in terms of, you know, divide, you know, uh, resolving that divide. So I think that there are many on the, on the island of Puerto Rico who understand the necessity in terms of independence, who understand the history in terms of subjugation of people based upon skin color. And one of the things that's great about Puerto Rico, you know, uh, unlike some uh, Central American or I mean, Caribbean nations, the Puerto Ricans are pretty clear. They, they understand their African roots. They have no problem in terms of acknowledging that. And so that's what you got, you know, and so I think that plays a large part in terms of their willingness to recognize solace or uh humanity in terms of a fight, you know, for, for freedom and dignity for human beings, you know, throughout the planet. So I think that, you know, Puerto Rico stands apart, you know, uh, for most islands in terms of his understanding, his historical understanding in terms of his, his role in terms of the fight for humanity. So I think that uh, it's just quite impossible of the, the, you know, the Puerto Rican stand in terms of, you know, um, you know, doing that which is uh, in the interest of humanity. And, and recently, you know, the Puerto Ricans did a very good job in terms of getting the corrupt governor out of power. And so, therefore, they understand necessity in terms of fighting fighting the power. So I think that their acknowledgement of, of um, Asada Shakur is simple acknowledgement that they understand that this fight for human dignity goes on. Certainly the just struggles of the people support one another. And the, anyone who's a revolutionary in Puerto Rico who's for independence and the anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, should understand and support the struggles of, of African Americans and and people of color uh, who are trying to get rid of this oppressive system and and which also oppresses them. And so um, it's only natural that the struggles should support each other. Thank you. All right, panelists, what we're going to do, we're going to pause to the call. We're going to play a little bit of music, a sweet inspiration, 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 inspiration. And when we come back, we um, started last week dealing with African oppression. We've been talking about it all along, and education economics. We're going to talk just a little bit about um, Africa, and they said that Africa may ha- may have 90% of the world's poor in the next 10 years, according to the World Banks. We're going to talk about that, and after that, we hope to have our brother Michael Imhotep from African History Network on to talk about just that. So what we're going to do is we're going to pause for the calls when we come back. Let's talk about this whole question of Africa may have 90% of the world's poor in the next 10 years. What is that all about, panelists? We're going to pause for this cause. This is Africa on the Move. We'll be right back.
Babylon Quite illegal You're in a Milan Dig out me go In a Milan Digging out me pearl In a Milan Dig out me diamond Here I go fight, 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 fight Yes, the party Talking about 
many things are going on in the context of the U.S., but I just thought about something to listen to the uh, theme song Apartheid, uh, Peter Tosh. What's the difference between Apartheid in, 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 in Zambia, South Africa, and Apartheid in America? We still live in this out in America and where most other places we're at, Palace. What is the difference? Mainly form, not essence. Um, the the essence is pretty much the same. Where if we find ourselves in the diaspora, or on the or, or on the continent, uh, just that here, um, you know, uh, is known as Jim Crow. But the essence is uh, is fairly uh, is very similar to apartheid as practiced in South Africa. Uh, and um, it just that, uh, as a matter of fact, the uh, settler colonialists in South Africa studied the U.S. As did the Nazis in Germany. They studied, uh, you know, uh, social practices in the U.S. toward Africans when they were when they were uh, formulating uh, their policies towards uh, their African uh, populations. So the essence is the same, no matter what what settler colony in the world you're talking about. Yeah, the essence is the same. Yeah, the essence is the same. Yeah, the essence is the same. But I think what the United States does a very good job in terms of public relations. So we can create the perception that in fact that uh, everybody in America is doing well uh, based upon his or her abilities. And that the fact, to the extent that uh, any kind of inequalities exist, is because it's peculiar to that, that particular individual, that particular group. So I think that when you when you get down to it, when you look at the socioeconomic factors in terms of you know uh, those things that make America run, those things that contribute to the health of Americans, and clearly African people consistently is always on the top. When you talk about unemployment, and, and the, the irony is that even when you talk about educated Africans. Uh, when you talk about level of unemployment, those levels of unemployment among college-educated Africans below uh, high school-educated white folks. So clearly, you know, there is, it's an apartheid system, but uh, unfortunately, we, uh, somehow we, we, we're breaking the Kool-Aid, and we believe that, in fact, that somehow our situation is different than the situation that was in Zambia, uh, South Africa. And in fact, it's identical to what's happening in South uh, Zambia, South Africa. They just don't call us the N-word anymore outright. Now, you know, it's... Uh, you know, it's it, well. It's changing now. Now they do call you the N word, uh, you know, blatantly. <laughs> so, so, it's, so that's even changing. But I, but I, but I think that it is the the institutional barriers that present African people from a full participation in society is very much part of the American experience. And um, anybody who understands that understands that we have a long way to go in terms of you know equality in the society. But we should not be deceived, you know, by propaganda or thinking that in fact you know, that situation somehow. <clears throat> Preferable to the situation of Africans back on the continent, when in reality, you know, is a question of degrees. Uh, our brothers and sisters in Africa may catch hell, but Africans in America catch hell just as well. So it's, it's a question of degrees. So we shouldn't deceive ourselves into believing that somehow that we are that we are we're vastly uh, better off. Yeah, I can see Malcolm saying there. How in the hell you could be against apartheid in Zambia, South Africa, and not the apartheid in America? But you know, a lot of aggressive and left-wing people, they take that position. They can fight against things abroad, but don't see the same contradiction right where they're at. 
But anyway, panelists, let's um, take a look at it and let's critique this article right here that I found very interesting and continue to follow along our theme as it relates to African oppression, using education economics as a means of oppressing us. That was an interesting article titled uh, Bloomberg Company. Um, the wrote called Africa may have 90% of the world's poor in the next 10 years. This from the World Bank. From the World Bank. Now, in my stat class, one of the things I learned was that anytime when you have a high concentration of anything within one particular group, it's not a natural thing. That is something that has been uh, manufactured, something that has been, um, you know, it's been contrived. What does that tell us when you're talking about the possibility of 90% of all the world poor base will be centered in Africa? What does that reality, that relationship tell us as it relates to Africa, we as African people and the rest of the world? Open up your panel. Your analysis on that. What that is telling us is that true value is um, where there are an abundance of natural resources. That which is temporary and can run out is a shelf life on how long that will be the valuable commodity in terms of those that are pro-capitalism. It is clear that they're going to um, pillar and pump, um, pillar, ah, excuse me. It's clear they're going to pillage Africa in terms of getting access to the resources so they can use that to um, make certain material goods that they can mark up and sell at an astronomical value. Because dependence, as California shows with its energy crisis, depending on these fossil fuels and other things that are temporary and um, can be easily um, produced, is going to result in them needing something to maintain this uh, economic system as is. Very good point. Very good point, uh, Brother Jabari. Very good point. And, and, and here's the thing, Brother Africa. Uh, one of the things, you know, recently they had a U.S.-African business summit. And what is interesting about the summit, one would think that the summit normally was to enhance you know, business opportunities, you know, uh, on the continent of Africa. But that's not what they're doing. In fact, what they're talking about is investing $60 billion to the least, to the middle-income and least developed African nations. So they're talking about about 18 African states in which they're talking about investing in. And here's the kicker. They're talking about limited investments in terms of limited equity investments in terms of Africa. So, which means that as when we talk about the stock market, we talk about full participation in terms of people's opportunity, you know, to invest, you know, in you know, equity or stocks, whatever they want. They are limiting in terms of how many people actually invest in Africa and Africa stocks. So, what they're saying to you that they have no desire in terms of, you know, elevating your know, Africa's economic position. And in fact, they they want to do it, you know, surreptitiously make the world think, and in fact, that they're committed to resolving the issue around poverty in Africa, when in reality, what they're trying to do is to enhance the poverty that's happening in Africa. And, one, and a couple other things about the Africans, we understand this. So one of the things, so when we talk about the problem of Africa, when we talk about investments, we've got to talk about state versus private investments. Uh, one of the things that, you know, the United States has criticized uh, China greatly in terms of, you know, uh, its, its, its state investments. But the thing about the state investments in terms of just in terms of strategies, one of the things, if you if the state invests in a project, then it has to understand that in order to invest in that project, it has to be long term, because what they are counting on in terms of using those investments in terms of proceeds, at least in terms of develop, helping developing their own countries. So 
They're talking taking long-term view in terms of investment as opposed to private investment, which is all about getting and getting out. So you get in, get your profit, and you're gone. And so this is a historical problem in terms of America, in terms of investments in Africa. And keep in mind, $60 billion is no money for, you know, 18 countries. That's, that's peanuts. I mean, and, and the reality is that when you talk about investments in Africa, the return historically in terms of African investments far exceeds the returns of investments in Europe, in Asia, uh, Central and South America. But if, despite the fact you have these huge returns, the investments are very, very low. So that speaks volumes. But one thing I am very, very happy about, Af- Brother Africa, when we talk about in terms of this, 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 this poverty uh, impinging upon, you know, the African continent, one of the things I'm happy to see that as executive director of the Microeconomic and Financial Management Institute of Eastern and Southern Africa, the acronym is MEFMI, M-E-F-M-I, MEFMI, MEFMI. All right, this brother named Khalid uh, Fundenga, right, he's the head of this, of this institute. And what he's talking about, he's advocating for, you know, Chinese, you know, to, 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 to utilize trade in terms of the Chinese currency, which means you bypass the dollar. So, therefore, after this opportunity in terms of, you know, favorable trade in which, in which each side really benefit becomes much greater. So one of the things in terms of investing in the dollar, one of the things when we talk about investments, you know, um, not only do they have a scenario in which when you talk about U.S. investments in Africa, they, they hit Africa twice. So you have to hit Africa on the front end in terms of making these business deals in which you have to pay back debt loan. But then on the back end, they take those 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 same resources Sell them for an exorbitant amount of money, and Africa get nothing from them. So they hit Africa twice in terms of in terms of fees, and so therefore this 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 exchange, this exchange of currency between China and Africa in terms of facilitating trade is going to do a lot in terms of helping Africa develop its infrastructure. But this brother Khalid Fungenga, uh, in terms of you know making a statement that you know this is this is the way we have to go, ultimately is going to lead to a situation where African nations begin to understand that we have to have a a United Af- Bank of Africa, and secondly, we must control our own currency. So this is the first step forward. So for Africa, for this, for, for, for Khalid Mbenga to actually talk about the fact, you know, that we're going to engage in trade other than the U.S. dollar speaks values in terms of Africa's beginning to move forward in terms of understanding in terms of world politics and what it has to do in terms of moving forward. Yes, I would. Uh, that is a good sign, uh, Brother Haki. I would add that that the next big step would be to re- realize the necessity of political unification, and that would uh, and that would enable African staff greater control of their economics, because right now. Uh, you, uh, I noted that the article stated that the rate of poverty reduction in Africa slowed substantially after the collapse in commodity prices that started in 2014. Now, what this article doesn't mention, it is the capitalist countries of the world that determine commodity prices, not Africans themselves. And uh, that's a situation in which uh, you 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 have a situation which you you only supply the raw materials, but you buy the f- finished uh, product elsewhere. Now, if Africa had the ability to manufacture its uh, it, you know its own goods, 
then it would be on a on a better footing to dictate the price of its commodities. Right now, Africa's divided in these small, non-viable economic and p- political entities that cannot, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, bargain with the the unified forces of uh, capitalism of a fair price for the uh, uh, for its goods. And uh, that's the dilemma. And this article assumes that 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 is going to stay that way, which is not necessarily a valid assumption. But that's what it's assuming when it says that uh, by 2030, uh, uh, 90% of the world's uh, impoverished would be in Africa. Okay, panelists, what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a quick station break. And when we come back, we can come back with our special guest tonight, Professor Michael Immortat with the uh, African History Network. We can come back with our special guest tonight. Again, listen to the audience, if you have any questions or comments, please call 323-679-0841. This is Africa on the Move, and we'll be right back with our special guest. Suicide cop. cop, tell the truth, cop with that suicide cop. cop. Are you fucking? 
fucking high cops, don't even try cops Ain't no motherfucking drugs up in my spot All you find in my closet is a high top And my motherfucking ticket to the skybox Hold up, nigga, I'm a rider Use a roller, yes, the controller Make me mad, that's when I get We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on Move. That was Cube speaking in rough and to the point. Good cop, bad cop. That was his artistic expression on how he see the realities of the relationships between certain forces within the society and his people. We welcome you back to Africa on the Move. And right now, we have a really interesting young man who uh, has like to say he's a what can you say? He's a, he, he has mastered the art of understanding the value of mass communication and social media. Right now, we'd like to bring in Brother Michael Immortek, and we'd like to greet him to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Brother Immortek, welcome to Africa on the Move. Hey, Brother Lee, how you doing tonight? Good, good, good. Look, Brother, for our listening audience who never heard of you before and don't know nothing about you, Drop a little bit to our listening audience in terms of who you are. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm uh, Michael M. Hotep, uh, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. I'm a talk show host, researcher, lecturer, and writer, and, and historian. Um, we have, as you see on the African History Network, our Facebook fan page, we have one million followers. Um, I do lectures. Um, I speak uh, in different cities across the country. I uh, just spoke here in Detroit this past weekend for a uh, social justice ministry at the uh, Baptist Church here in Detroit. Um in seven documentaries it is now. Um, Elementary Genocide Part 3 from director Raheem Shabazz, the uh, Black Friday series from director Rick Mathis, uh, Resurrecting Black Wall Street, the blueprint from... Uh, Boyce Watkins and Your Black World Films and some other ones also. So, um, you know, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct your own behavior. I'm the host of the African History Network show. So currently it comes on Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on 9, 10 a.m., the Superstation WFDF in Detroit. And then also broadcast uh, simultaneously on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network. And uh, I did Blog Talk Radio, uh, did the African History Network show live on uh, Blog Talk Radio for years, Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So I still upload our audio podcast to uh, our Facebook, to our Blog Talk Radio page. Uh, the African History Network show on Blog Talk, so be sure to follow us there, the African History Network show. So all the uh, Facebook Live videos I do, YouTube broadcast, things like that, I put them in audio podcast format also and put them on our uh, Blog Talk radio page. So, Brother Imhotep, speaking to our people in mm-hmm. the state of, state of Ben, what is, what is the message you'd like to share with them? Well, uh, you know, the, the foundation for all of this, so this is, I think, a very pivotal time because um, in August uh, August of this year, many of us were commemorating 400 years uh, from August 20th, 1619 to August 20th, 2019. And then um, also this year is the, so the uh, 100th year anniversary of the Red Summer of 1919 
where you had over 25 major race riots in this country. That was the year after World War One ended. And uh, you had uh, 5 million men who fought in World War One, and uh, most of them white. And when they came back home, they couldn't find jobs. So, But they were attacking African-Americans because many uh, African-Americans uh, were migrating from the south up north, and they were going to work in factories getting these jobs that these white men left behind. And then you had immigrants coming to this country as well getting these jobs also. So that exploded into what was known as what James Weldon Johnson of the NAACP called the Red Summer of 1919 because the streets of America were flowing with blood. So as we have this reflection on 400 years, um, and this is the year of return, so we know many African Americans are traveling back to Africa, especially West Africa, like Ghana, things like this, reconnecting to our African roots. And we have the 100th year anniversary of the Red Summer. Uh, also, many of us are understanding that the history of African people started in this country going back tens of thousands of years ago. So if we read the first Americans were Africans documented evidence by Dr. David M. Hotel, no relation to me, but he's a friend of mine. I've interviewed him 13 times. We know that African people have been in this land going back at least continuously, going back at least 51,700 years ago, dealing with the Khoisan. The Khoisan come from southern Africa. They have the oldest DNA on the planet. They're the ancestors to the Ainu and the Twa. They go all around the world. They were here in this land also. So as we understand the chronology of history, we understand, one, African people are the original Americans. Two, this was our land stolen from us. Three, yes, the transatlantic slave trade did happen, but we have to understand the history of how it happened and the chronology of how it happened. And to understand the transatlantic slave trade, you have to understand the 800-year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors, who go into the Iberian Peninsula today known as Spain and Portugal in 711 A.D., and they take the teachings from ancient Kim and ancient Egypt in the Nile Valley region of Africa into Europe. This brings Europe out of the Dark Ages. It's going to lead to the transatlantic slave trade starting in 1441 with the Portuguese. The Spanish are right behind them. This leads to uh, Christopher Columbus setting sail on his first of four voyages, August 3rd, 1492, in the name of the Santa Maria. And we know that Columbus was essential to the spread of slavery, racism, capitalism, and the exploitation of indigenous people, including African people. So as we as we are at this pivotal time in history, we have to understand this chronology of history. We have to understand that it's African history and culture that gives us our foundation, gives us our values, our interests, and our principles. As as two of my teachers, Dr. Linda Jeffries and Professor James Small, teaches, our values, our interests, and our principles. And this gives us our cultural paradigm that we see reality through. And it's our values, our interests, and our principles that gives that that gives us our self esteem, our self development, our self worth, and it influences our economic empowerment as well as our political empowerment. So we have to have a synthesis of all three. It's not just African history and culture. Because, see, uh, unfortunately, oftentimes, Brother Lee, many of our people want to metaphysically transport ourselves back to 3000 B.C. and ancient Kemet and not deal with the issues of today. But the people's history and culture are supposed to teach them how to deal with the problems of the past in the in the present and the future to meet the needs of the community. Not not we we can't use African history and culture as escapism. So we so we so we can't we can't do the same thing that many of us accuse Christians of. So you know there's a saying in uh in the Christian church that you're so heavenly bound that you that you are no earthly good. 
right? So we can't just so 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 you have many Christians who are focused on going there. Say that again, brother. I never heard that one before. I was just smiling when you said that, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, you're so heavenly bound that you're no earthly good. So, so you have some yeah. Christians who are so focused on going to heaven, they're not focused on addressing the needs of the people today. Not all Christians, but the, the, the Christians know what I'm talking about. They, they, those people exist, right? So at the, at the same time, some some of us get focused on African history and culture so much, we don't focus on using it to address the issues and needs of our people today. We're trying to metaphysically transport ourselves back to 3000 BC and ancient Kemet. So we don't have to deal with the issues of the day. And, that, and, and your history and culture is supposed to help you to deal with the problems of today and understand your history and understand your successes and failures of the past so you can deal with the problems of today and the present and the future to meet the needs of the community. So sometimes we misuse it, okay, and we and we exchange a cross for an arc but still have the same mentality. Okay, so we, we have to understand that we have to have a synthesis of, of, of all of this to deal with the economics, the economic empowerment, uh, so we can so we should control the the businesses in our community on the land, uh, on the grocery store, the gas stations, the radio stations, the TV stations, et cetera. We should be able to employ ourselves. Are some of our people still going to work for white people? Yes, they are. There's, I mean, some of our my degree is in business administration with a major in marketing. I've taught entrepreneurship for seven years. Okay, some of our people have no business owning a business. I'm just be quite honest with you. Okay, but that's not because they're black. It's just because they don't have the skill set. They may be good employees, but they're not good at entrepreneurship. Um, but just because of the sheer numbers, some of us are still going to work for other people. But that doesn't mean that we can't spend our dollars with our own people. And then we have to control the politics in our community as well, okay? Our taxpayer dollars pay for the salaries of elected officials in our cities, and they also pay for the policies that benefit us and the policies that are detrimental to us. All right. So we have to so so we have to not just control the economics in our community, but also the politics. And we have to leverage our economics to enforce our political agenda. But to have a political agenda or to have an agenda, period, you have to have an understanding of your history, understand where you are today and the conditions you are in today, understand the policies that were put in place to address those, that, that created those conditions. And be, so and you have to be able to do that to understand the policies that need to be in put in place to correct the conditions, right? So, so, so once again, this goes back to understanding our history, all right? So all of this is, is, all of this is extremely important. Um, and one of the main reasons why people don't, some of our people, one of the main reasons why some of our people don't fight back is because many of our people do not think they are worth fighting for, which once again goes to their self-perception, their self-esteem, their self-development, their self-worth. If you consume imagery and music, that that calls you dehumanized in terms on a daily basis, it will probably negatively impact how you see yourself and how you see people who look like you. Okay, so this is why that foundation is so important, man. The African history and culture. So we're at a very pivotal time in history, and then we know next year is 2020. So it's not just a presidential election. There's 435 seats in the House of Representatives up. And as I think about 20 seats in the U.S. Senate up as well. Then you have city council, mayor, state represent, state representative, state legislature, governorships, things like this. So this is a very pivotal time in history. 
Okay, Brother Umatat, we have a panelist and this on the line. We have other people who have, who have called in as well. What we're going to do is, before we go to our call-in callers, we go to our panelists, and then we go to our callers. So just be patient with us. They may want to ask you some questions okay. or just respond to some of the things you have just stated to us. One of the things that I found really interesting and unique in terms of your race is that none of the African people, the original owners of this land, but, you know, they're the first ones and they should claim it. And I know that there may be some differences of opinions or differences of, of, of understanding or what have you. And um, let's just talk about some of these things as being a historian. So first we can go to our, one of our panelists. We'll bring in Brother Haki. We'll bring you in. The mic is yours. Yeah, let me just say, first of all, let me just say peace to the brother. You know, um, the thing is that, you know, my yeah, concern is that. Oh, good, brother. My my thing is that, you know, when you make a statement about uh, owning this land or claiming this land, that's that's a very interesting, very provocative statement. So perhaps you mm-hmm. can clarify in terms of why you make that statement and any type of resources you can provide in terms of sort of um, corroborating, you know, that thing that you take. Right. Well, what I'm saying is, is that, African, when we understand the chronology of history, we understand even before Native Americans came into existence, African people were here. We look at the discovery from Dr. Albert Goodyear, 2004, uh, Allendale County, South Carolina. Dr. David M. Hotel deals with this on page 14 of his book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. Dr. Albert Goodyear is an archaeologist at the University of South Carolina. They made a discovery. they found 13 different types of evidence that documented an African presence going back in this land at least 51,700 years ago. Uh, everything from artifacts, architecture, campsites, carvings, footprints in lava, uh, paintings, skulls, skeleton structures, and tools. So what I'm saying is, is when we when we understand what happened to this land here, and I'm, I'm separating the land from the government, okay. But when we understand what happened to this land here, this was our land stolen from us. Yes, the transatlantic slave trade happened. I'm not. I'm not saying it didn't happen. But African people were here for tens of thousands of years before the transatlantic slave trade happened. But so, so what happens is, well, I guess what I'm trying to say, what happens is, is that we're under the misconception, many of us, that when we first came to this land, that today is called the United States of America, conquered by Europeans, shackled in chains. So even though August 20, 1619 in Virginia and Point Comfort did happen, even though 1526 in South Carolina when the Spanish had taken Africans into South Carolina, 1526, 93 years before Jamestown, Virginia, even though that did happen, we were here before Europeans were here in this land. So what I'm saying is, is that we have to understand this total chronology of history. And when we understand that we did not originally come to this land conquered and shackled, shackled and chains, conquered by Europeans, it causes a, a it causes a paradigm shift. And you have you have archaeologists, you have white people who know this history, who know this information, but it's largely being suppressed because if 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 this if this information really got out, if if for instance, let me give you an example, 1619 project. New York Times. I read a number of articles from the 1619 Project. None of them dealt with this information that I'm sharing with you. Now, they had good information at the 1619 Project. They had one or two articles that talked about 1526 because 1526 is not talked about a lot. One is from the Washington Post that I read about 1526. 
okay? But it, w- what happens to our children if they understood that this was our land taken from us? What, how, how, how does that impact our children psychologically? Who, 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 and, and unfortunately, many of our children still think that Columbus discovered America. Columbus never came to the land we call the United States of America. The closest he came here was Cuba, which is 90 miles away. Columbus never even set foot on this land, the contiguous United States. He never even set foot on this land. But we do know that Juan Garrido, who came into Florida in, in Florida in 1513 with the Spanish conquistador Juan Ponce de Leon, he was of African descent. That's before 1526. So what, what happens is, is that when we understand this history, this has a tremendous effect on our psychology, and our thoughts create feelings, feelings create actions and behaviors, actions and behaviors create results. Yeah, I, 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 hear you. I, I hear you, brother. You know, and in fact, there are those archaeologists who take the point that over 100,000 100, years ago, African people were on this, on this continent trading and uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in infrastructure. So that's well documented. And, and one thing is very, very clear. When you talk about Central and South America, you talk about the Omex stones in terms of, you know, the, the African presence is very, very well documented. And you're absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. All those things are right. absolutely but, but even before, correct. even way before the Omex, even way before the Omex, right. you right. had the Khoisan. But go right. ahead. That's right. Go ahead. That's right. That's right. Uh, now, the thing is that, you know, I was, I would have, my question is, I was just wondering if you have, like, any type of settlements that we can point to per se to uh, – Concretely indicate that in fact that you know our, our people established roots here in North America. That's all I was asking. So do you know of any oh, okay. any settlements per se that actually exist that we can point to and say, see, this one preceded the the uh, so-called arrival of Columbus. Uh, this one preceded uh, Vasco da uh, Gama, so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. Now I think one of the things also a second unrelated question is that talk can you talk a little bit about uh, Abubakar Abubakar the second in terms of a world traveler. I didn't mention them, but yeah, go ahead. Fifteen, um, I mean thirteen, twelve, Abubakar the second, and then you have Mansa Musa that comes after Abubakar the second. But go ahead. I didn't mention them, but go ahead. No, I just wanted to talk a little bit about them. Aside from the question in terms of, you know, indicating you know any settlements that may have existed historically prior to the arrival of so-called Columbus and Vasco da Gama. Right. Well, okay. So when you talk about Columbus. So Columbus is going into the Caribbean. Uh, he's going into, you know, Panama, Honduras. He lands originally lands in Bahamas, October twelfth, fourteen ninety-two. Okay. So Caribbean. So so Columbus goes mainly into the Caribbean. He goes into um, uh, South America. He goes into Central America. Some, uh, but he he uh, the what we call today the United States of America. Uh, this this con- this contiguous landmass of 48 states, he never he never comes to this land. What he does is is he's setting up he's conquering uh, the the land like Hispaniola, which becomes Haiti, things like this. They're conquering this land and they're setting up um, plantations, sugarcane plantations especially. They're looking for gold and silver. We know that he's trying to find a route uh, to go to uh, Asia, okay, uh, as well. But what he's going to do is, what he does is, is it really expands the transatlantic slave trade. The reason why is because he decimates the population of the Taino. 
like in Hispaniola, okay, who are referred to who are referred to as Native Americans. They are a group of a, a larger family called the Arawaks. Um, he's and, and also a good a good book people can read a good like really easy book is Christopher Columbus in African Holocaust Slavery and the Rise of European Capitalism by Dr. John Henry Clark. Okay, Christopher Columbus and the African Holocaust Slavery and the Rise of European Capitalism. Um, they decimate the population of uh, the what are referred to as the indigenous people, the Native Americans, things like this, but they decimate the population. And then they're going to start bringing um, Africans in in the early 1500s, okay? Um, in 15, uh, right about 1517, you have uh, Bishop Bartolomeu de las Casas, okay? B-A-R-T-O-L-O-M-E, Bartolomeu de las Casas. De las Casas is a bishop that travels with Columbus on some of his voyages, and he keeps a diary, and he documents the atrocities Columbus is inflicting upon the people there, the, you know, in the different islands. Um, De Las Casas goes to King Charles V uh, right at about 1517 and says that the uh, the indigenous people, Native Americans, however you want to term it, they suffered enough. Their populations have been decimated, and he suggests that they that they uh, enslave exclusively African people. So, in 1518, uh, King Charles V of Spain issues the Asiento de Negros, A S I E N T O, the Asiento. Um, a good write-up on the Asiento is that Britannic, there, there are a number of them. You can just Google Asiento de Negros. A, a good write-up on it is at Britannica.com, official website of Encyclopedia Britannica. That's in 1518. The Asiento was the license that the Spanish government gives to other European nations to supply Spanish colonies with Africans. At, to enslave them, and this accelerates the enslavement of African people. Okay, so when you look at this, when we look at this history, it's important to look at it chronologically, because a lot of times when we talk about the transatlantic slave trade, a lot of people don't talk about the Asiento. Okay, uh, also a good article to read by Dr. Maleficetti Asante at his website Asante.net, A-S-A-N-T-E, Asante.net. It's called. Um, Henry Lewis, Henry Lewis Gates is wrong about African involvement in the slave trade. Henry Lewis Gates is wrong about African involvement in the slave trade. And in that article, one of the things he talks about in that article briefly is the Asiento. Okay. But um, so when we look at uh, settlements, uh, you mentioned, I'm trying to think of some offhand. Um, well, I know Allendale County, South Carolina is one of them, because that, that became exposed in 2004, the discovery by Dr. Albert Goodyear. Um, some ancient ones in this land that we call the U.S., some ancient ones um, I can't think of offhand. I know there were about 1 million mounds in this land. Today they're only about 100,000. There were pyramid mounds up and down the Mississippi River. Um I do know in talking to Dr. David M. Hotep, there's a group of probably about 30,000 black Indians who have not intermixed. They are in Louisiana. 
I don't from, I don't remember which city. I inter- I spoke with her. Well, I interview. I spoke with her on the phone, and she did most of the talking. This sister's name is Chief Warhorse, and she is part of that group of black Indians. I'm going to have to interview this sister because she was talking. We talked for about an hour. He put me. What happened was back in 2013, Dr. David M. Hotel went down there and met with this group uh, of black, what, what, what we would call black Indians. And they're like dark skinned and they have not intermixed. So when they marry, they intermarry like within their tribe. Okay. They don't like marry outsiders. So they've kept their complexion. Um, so I'm going to have to uh, do an interview because his sister had like, she had a, a lot of history, a lot of knowledge, but also the history of um, black Indians is, I would say something's probably like glossed over. It's not, it's not really looked at in depth. And that's a history that we really need to study as we, as we deal with all this history chronologically, that's a history that we really need to look at also the, the, the history of, uh, of black Indians. Um, one good article, lastly, one good article uh, I, I would suggest people can check out is uh, from AtlantaBlackStar.com, 10 pieces of evidence that prove black people sailed to the Americas long before Columbus, 10 um, pieces of evidence that prove black people sailed to the Americas lo- uh, long before Columbus. So they're not saying that Columbus came to the land we call the United States of America, but he was in the Americas. That's from AtlantaBlackStar.com. Okay, we're not going to do right there. Let me take one of our listeners in order to stay called in. They have a question. We're going to take the call over the last four numbers, 9644. Right. Call on 9644. Your question or comment. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. How you guys doing tonight? Pretty good. All right, how are you, doing? brother? All right, man. Yeah, I got a question, man, if you guys would allow me. Go mm-hmm. ahead. All yours. Yeah, okay. So, you know, um, you know, so to put all of the education and all the big words and all the books that people have read by racists, you know, written by racists, oh, let's put all this stuff aside, all right? Let's talk common sense real quick, right? So these are the questions that I have, you know, because I'm not a scholar. I'm a, I'm a very uneducated man, but I do have common sense. So what I would like to ask is, okay, so the, the whole argument that I'm seeing, my dude, is that, um, White people inherently have all the power. They got all the wealth. They 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 pretty much run the world. Am I right? You asking me? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah. To a certain extent, uh, I wouldn't say they have all the power, but but to 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 a certain extent. But go ahead, go ahead with your question, though. Right. Okay. So then. My question would be, though, you know, I've heard a lot of black folks talk about this, right? Though They always tell me that, you know, black folks are kings or they're queens or they're gods and all these things. And they was the original mm-hmm. people or they was here before anybody else and all these things. So why is it that I hear so many black people talking about how how, how much better the white man has it and how much better that they're doing? You know what I'm saying? Because if you look at the Americans specifically, though, you know, Asian Americans and Indian Americans are actually above white Americans in education and economics. So what I'm saying mm-hmm. is, is why was it that Asian Americans, Indian Americans, and white Americans, why were they able, and even Jewish Americans, from what they went through, how were they able to build a life, you know, say to be successful and have power and all these things, but blacks and Hispanics for some reason just can't figure it out. So they're so they're, they're the original people. They're so smart, bro. How are they not able to figure out what the Jews and the whites and the Asians and the Indian Americans? Why, why are they not able to do that? Like, so I, I'm confused. Okay, so. When you look at the term Asian American, 
the term Asian American includes well, the term Asian American is a tricky term. It includes people from about 20 different countries, including India. It includes people that have different backgrounds, different histories, different cultures. It includes people from Burma, India, China, Japan, Vietnam, Cambodia, South Korea, things like this, right? Um, when we look at uh, Asian Americans, what we determine what we call Asian Americans, um, they were allowed to assimilate in this country eventually. They were allowed to assimilate. Uh, well, assimilate means to uh, be brought into, uh, yeah, basically assimilate. They, they're, they're allowed to um, be brought into white society. And, you know, somebody like a Dr. Claude Anderson, he would say that they are on probation to be white. If you, if you understand, really? if, you study, if you study the term white, right, in this society, uh-huh. it changes the, over the course of time. Who is considered white changes. So when we use the term white, we think of like what people may call Anglo-Saxons or white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, things like this, right? What do you mean by but white? It, it, take it. Well, 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 let me explain. It wasn't until the end of World War II that Greeks and Italians were classified as white by the white power structure. Yeah, the Jews are in because there too now, right? Depends upon who you ask. If you ask white supremacist Nazis, they say no. If you, it depends upon who you ask. No? If you ask white supreme, no, no, no. If no, you I'm say if you, you ask white supreme, if you ask, just let me explain. If you ask white supremacist Nazis, they attack Jews also. No, so but I know, but I'm you, asking if you, yeah, if you talk, if you're talking about like uh, Ashkenazi Jews, things like this, I, I would I would uh, basically classify them as white. Because, because, because Jewish more relates to uh, religion, so I would more classify them. I would more classify them as white. But you have people who are white who don't look at the Jews as white, and and and, and part of it has to do with the fact that they're not Christians. Also, there's part of the animosity against Jews historically. So they're religious or is it racial? Well, Jew, Jewish is Jewish is a religion, but right. you so have different. But you have people. White people, Christians don't look at them like that, or is it racial? Yeah, because for instance, let me give you an example. When you study the when you study the Ku Klux Klan, Ku Klux Klan was founded December twenty fourth, eighteen sixty five, in Pulaski, Tennessee. You okay. couldn't be Jewish and join the Ku Klux Klan, even though you look white. Because so when you look so at the bylaws, when you look at the a lot of just, just just one second, just one second, just one second. When you when you look at the bylaws of the of like the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, you study the origins. You had to be a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male you said to had be to? to yeah. You couldn't be Jewish. What about today? They didn't allow Jews they, because they were attacking Jews. They were uh-huh. attacking Jews even today. They, 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 if you study the Klan, the Klan doesn't like Jews. If you study the Ku Klux Klan, right. you study the neo Nazis, all of them, they they attack Jews. They don't like Jews, so that's historical. Okay. okay? So if you right. so what, what what people can do if you go to census.gov, make a long story short, because I know at now fifteen I've got Brother Lee on my show. Uh, if you go to census.gov and search for the 2010 census uh, 2010 census form, look at page three of the 2010 census form. 
it gives the racial classifications. It tells you that people coming from North Africa coming to the U.S. are classified as white. It breaks down what white is. It tells you that people, even even black Africans coming from North Africa, even though there's a lot of what we call Arabs in North Africa, black Arabs in North Africa, black Ab- black Africans who come from Egypt, even though they've been pushed further down south. Yeah, but brother, when they immigrate to the question, well, well, when they immigrate to the U.S., they're classified as white. But you still have to answer my original is, question. You, you did a lot of talking. What was your, your original question? question? What's your original question? My original question is, how was Asians and Indian Americans and whites and all the, and even the Africans, you say they are white now because they come here and they, they kind of live good lives. They start their businesses and mind their business. Why are they able to figure out but American black folks are not able and Hispanic black, like, why, why are they not able to do what the rest of them, like, I don't understand that you haven't answered that, though. But, like, what is it about Hispanics and blacks as a majority in the country that they collectively don't can't figure out how to success in America, but Asians and Indians and whites and even immigrants from other countries are able to figure it out. How were they not able to figure this out? Well, I would say that um, African-Americans in in many periods of time in our history, we were able to figure it out. What happened was many of the townships that we had that were uh, African-American owned and controlled, going back to after slavery ends, were attacked by white domestic terrorism, attacked by the KKK, attacked by the uh, Knights of the White yeah, Camellia, attacked by the Black the Legion. Though, brother. I thought they were I'm like explaining the, this to you. the original, I'm, I'm, the gods and all these things. I thought they were that. I'm, I'm explaining it to you. I'm explaining it to you. I'm explaining it to you. What's going to happen to respond? We've got to take one more call, then we've got to move forward. Thank you for oh, your that's fine with me. So, so if we look at so Lee, if we look at how uh, African Americans lost land because coming out of slavery, uh, in the 1865, largely we were not compensated with land. You, you're going to have uh, special field order number 15, 40 acres in the mule, but that's only 400,000 acres of land. The most of that was taken back under President Andrew Johnson. Okay. By 1910, we accumulated 16 million acres of land. 1920, we owned about 920,000 farms. We're going to lose land through various ways. One, many of us have ran off of our land, okay, so we ran up north. Two, property taxes were overassessed on our land, and we couldn't pay the property taxes, so we lose land. Three, you have something called heirs' property. Heirs' property is a loophole because a lot of us didn't understand law. Heirs' property was a loophole that allowed a lot of our land to be sold off, okay, sold off right from underneath our feet. So there are going to be various ways that we lose, that various ways that we lose land, and some, and some of us are going to uh, be killed for our land also, okay. That's, a, that's another thing. So um, we're going to have uh, black townships. We're going to have Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street. We're going to have uh, Paris Street in uh, North Carolina, all different types of things like this. But these are things that are going to be lost because we were attacked. Unfortunately, a lot of times many of us don't understand the history of how we lost this land, okay? Uh, So these are things that we have to understand and have to get back. But when you look at Asians, uh, Asians were allowed to assimilate into white society, all right? So today, about 50% of Asian, what we call Asian Americans, are married to white people, 
All right. So, but when you come to African Americans, we were we were not allowed largely to assimilate. And the other thing is, is that those who have the highest concentrations of melanin in general get the brunt of racism. Those that have the highest concentrations of melanin get the brunt of racism. Right now, you have a lot of people who, a lot of white people, not all of them, but you have a lot of white people who fear 2043. 2043 is the year where white people will no longer be the uh, majority population in this country. Okay, they drop, they'll drop to like 50%. So they won't be the majority population in this country. So you have people talking about the browning of America and the fear of the browning of America. All right? So they target, so, so they're targeting Hispanics and things like this with the fear of the browning of America. So um, when we look at this, when you talk about African immigrants coming to this country, African immigrants, uh, or we, we include like Haitians, Jamaicans, things like this, even though they do experience racism, they have more intact their history and culture intact, which in a people's history culture teaches them that basically the only way they're going to survive is by working together. All right. So we know that um, they are more likely to start businesses, but also they have systems of cooperative economics, which, which are systems of raising capital and loaning money out, like the SUSU system, S-U-S-U, SUSU system that is popular in West Africa. African Americans have a deep, rich history of cooperative economics, but many of us have don't know it. We've forgotten that. That's something we have to get back to, the co-ops. We have co-ops in, during slavery, like the Free African Society created in 1787. We, we have a long history of them, whether it's the Colored Merchants Association, like in 1928, the Colored Farmers Union in 1886 in Texas. If pe- people can read the book by Dr. Jessica Gordon Nimhard uh, called Collective Courage. Collective Courage. I interviewed this sister, I think it was like 2014, Collective Courage. Her book documents a deep, rich history of us using all different types of co-ops. Okay, all throughout history, going back to slavery, but many of us don't many of us don't know that that history exists. So a lot of us went to white business schools, or we may have gone to business schools at HBCUs, and we learned white business principles, and we try to implement white business principles in the African American community. Now it may work for you, it may work for your family, but the white business principles don't work for the collective like the cooperatives did. That's something that we have to tap back into and and, and really study that history and and, and really get into. Because today when we hear co-ops, right, we think of white gentrifiers, we think of white hippies. No, we have a deep, rich history in co-ops going back hundreds of years, but we don't know that. Okay, Brother Mike, let me do this. Let me let you take one more quick question, then we're going to have to move on. Go ahead. We'll bring you back some time. Okay, Brother Anthony? The Mike and Joe has got one question or comment. Brother Anthony. One question. What is your uh, 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 feelings about Pan-Africanism as the solution mm-hmm. to the problems facing African peoples in the di- at home and in the diaspora? Well, Pan-Africanism is, is extremely important. Um, when you say Pan-Africanism, explain to me exactly what you mean. Because some, for some people, Pan-Africanism sure. is different. With, mm-hmm. Yeah, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. 
Mm-hmm. Under scientific socialism. Okay. So with some yeah, people... That with, came out of the oh, first, Af- first Pan-African Congress in mm-hmm. uh, 1945, shared, right. shared by Kwame Nkrumah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, and Kwame Nkrumah of um, of Ghana. Ghana. Absolutely. Okay. So, so yeah, Ghana. Yeah, yep, that's what we're saying, Ghana. Okay. So, um, definitely. Now, some people, when they talk about Pan-Africanism, they uh, may not include socialism. doesn't mean they mean capitalism. They may just not include socialism. But absolutely, all African, all African people, not just on the continent, not just on the continent of Africa, but throughout the world, have to be united. That doesn't mean that we're going to agree on everything. Okay, but we have to see ourselves as one people. Okay, so I totally agree with that. And we also have to within seeing ourselves as one people. That also means reconnecting to African history and culture, okay, because some of us have maintained our, our history and culture to a certain extent. Some of us have been stripped of our history and culture. But Pan-Africanism is, um, Pan-Africanism is extremely uh, important. Uh, I definitely agree with that. And let me give you one quick comment or question from Brother Mosley, Mo, Brother Robo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I just got I just got to follow up too with the brother. I'm not sure the brother's name okay. who asked the question about Pan Africanism, but I, I just got to follow up to that uh, uh, to that response after after this next brother. You, you get a chance, brother Robo. A comment, question. Yes, um, yes, I, I'm I'm just listening and learning. I I really don't have any questions at this moment. Uh, somehow I I want to mention that. The sister who was head of the African Union passed this this week. But um, anyway, uh, I don't have any questions. Thank you. Okay. okay. Going back to so, the so, question, yeah. So very, 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 very quickly, with very quickly, when we talk about Pan Africanism, what what we have to understand is that in general, African people around the world, especially on the continent of Africa, are looking to African Americans to lead the way. Many of them look up to us. And one of the problems that many many African Americans suffer from is that we've been taught that African people hate us. Now, what happens is my argument would be we have to look at the negative stereotypical images of African Americans that are exported around the world. And that helps to shape the way people see us. The art, what I explain to people is that the same so, – so some some Africans, some continental Africans may have some negative perceptions of African Americans. But the question I would ask is where they get it from. The same people who taught many of us black people to hate ourselves are the same people who put out these negative stereotypical images of us that, that are exported around the world and shape the way people think about us also. Okay, they shape the way people think about us around the world. All right, so so we have to understand that. But Pan Africanism is extremely important because it also helps to uh, helps us to define ourselves and helps us to define how we see ourselves. Okay, so that that, that is um, that's the foundation. The, the African history, when I talk about African history and culture, giving us our values, our interests, and our principles, Pan-Africanism is in that. 
Okay, on that note, Brother Immortech, we got to thank you mm-hmm. for sharing some of your wisdom and knowledge as it relates to the history of our people. We'll bring you back some oh, more yeah. time. And, um, and very quickly, we got 30 seconds mm-hmm. to say your final words. 30 seconds to listen to Oh, yeah. Uh, people visit my website, African. Yeah, visit my website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All of our information is there. Uh, those in the Washington, D.C. area, I'll be in D.C. October 25th, October 26th with Michi X. We'll have that on our website. And then also, I'm speaking at your event. You didn't mention it, brother, the uh, uh, right. first annual Pan-African International Festival <laughs> of Culture right. and Unity right. in Richmond, Virginia, Sunday, October 27, 2019. I'll be speaking there as well, okay? <laughs> and that uh, was at uh, Afro-Congo. Yeah, yeah, uh, 3302 Williamsburg Road, 11 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. And we'll, we'll get the flyer on our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com also. Okay, Brother Lee, thanks for having me on. Hotep, everybody. Hotep. All right, peace. All right, Club Friday Thoughts. We'll go back to your caller that call in. 30 seconds to call you. Friday Thoughts, 9644. Hello? Call 9644, yes, quickly, your Friday Thoughts, 30 seconds. Yeah, my final thought is that he never answered my question, actually. You know, and I want people to be aware of people that speak real fast and speak with big words real fast. You know, they speak a lot of words but no meaning and no truth behind them. So I want people to be careful of that. You know what I'm saying? Don't just don't just listen to it because they know a lot of these books and a lot of these big words, right? Use your common sense. You know what I'm saying? And ask real questions and don't just believe somebody because they know really big words and can speak really fast and sound very educated because I believe you can be educated to the point where you become dumb. You know what I'm saying? So everybody just be careful of that and start asking common sense questions because I promise you when you do that, you're either going to get muted, you're going to get hung up on, or you're going to get very yelled at a lot. So just be real and stop listening to all this nonsense just because it sounds very good in theory. Don't do that. All right, Carlos, thank you for your participation in today's program. Brother Moses, 30 seconds, your final statement of thought. Yes, I I think I enjoyed the show tonight. It was very educational. The brothers spoke well, and uh, I appreciate it. Uh, I hope that um, we can get more uh, information like this involved. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Mo. Brother After, your final thoughts for tonight? Yes, my final thought for tonight is we need to organize and uh, and to achieve uh, Pan-Africanism, uh, to learn more about the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, you can visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org or call us at 202-246-4896. Okay, Brother Hakeem, you'll make your announcements and your final thoughts. Yes, uh, African Women's Association of the Solidarity Tour to Cuba. Trip takes place October 31st from November 6th. More information, call us 804-549-7492 or area code 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. And the second thing, as Brother Himotep talked about, uh, African Awareness first uh, in Richmond, Virginia, first annual African International Festival. This will take place Sunday, October 27th, between 11 and 6.30 p.m. More information, please give us a call at 804-549-7492 or area code 202-749-435 or email us at African Awareness Association, number two, 
at gmail.com. And in closing, I just want to say in terms of to the, to the brother who called in, I, I do understand your frustration. And then one of the things I want you to be careful about is that being able to express an idea doesn't make you somehow disingenuous, doesn't make you a bad person. Uh, one of the things that uh, we, we understand that being a person of African descent, one of the things that we were taught during our enslavement is that you should not express yourself in an intelligent kind of way because, after all, being intelligent is not the African way. And so let's be careful about this notion that the fact that if the African person expresses him or herself intelligently is somehow they're not to be believed. Uh, all we're doing is expressing ideas. And so you admit that, you, you, that, you're, that you're relatively uneducated, and that's fine. That's wrong with that, brother. Malcolm X was relatively uneducated. But it doesn't mean that you can't get your dictionary and study those words and understand what they mean. So when you have these kind of discussions, then you can follow along with what we're saying. Uh, but much respect to you, much love and respect to your brother for your, 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 your honesty, your candor for actually standing up and saying, listen, I don't understand a lot of things, but I have a question. But to answer your question specifically, I, I, you have to understand, when we talk about conditioning, we talk about how people think. We have to understand that given our, our experiences as slaves in the society, it put a lot of us not to be able to think. And as a consequence, uh, the system used that as ability to deny us opportunity in society. If we allow our children to grow up without the ability to think, then we, we, we make it possible for our children to continue this process. We can't allow that to happen. We must make sure our children become educated, and we must ensure our children across the board reject this notion that skin color defines your intelligence. I hope I made it simple enough where you can follow, but I appreciate your honesty in terms of your presentation. And call back next week, brother, and we'll continue this discussion, and uh, that's a lot more I could say. But anyway, you have a good night. And on that note, we'd like to thank everybody, Brother Emotex, for sharing his ideas and knowledge and experience. And Carla for sharing his ideas, his knowledge, and his experiences. And we always like to share, thank you, the audience, for allowing us to come to your house to speak truth to power and to provide our people with information so they can use it as a tool for liberation, not only to help liberate their people and our people, but all of humanity from the various forms of oppression. Remember, this is Africa on the Move. It's a weekly program. It's under the direction of the African Awareness Association. Again, call in next week, and we will continue to struggle. Frederick Douglass taught us where there's no struggle, there's no progress. So if you want to make progress, we must struggle. So, again, it was a good night. Until next week, we'll see you. And remember, come on out to the event on the 27th in Richmond, Virginia, the first International Pan-African Festival of Culture and Unity. And we're going to continue to have this dialogue. We're taking you back home. So right now, we'll see you next week, and we're going to take you back to Mama Africa.